Welcome to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Good morning, everybody. Happy Thursday. Welcome into Soccer Morning, brought to you by World Soccer Talk. We are live. We are ready to go. Yes, the news week is a little slow. I blame I blame the international break. Clearly, it's the international break's fault. It's uh, it's one of those situations where uh, the league stop, all the leagues stop except for MLS, of course, and uh, and the players go off to their countries, and a couple of players get injured, and we talk about that for a little bit, and then it's uh, what contract? What's in the news today? I mean, I'm gonna get to the headlines, but Raheem Sterling, U.S. Senators doing stuff <laughs> related to soccer, Real Madrid with a signing, of course, because they just spend money. Lionel Messi's injury. Again, it's injuries. Injuries and I don't know. I mean, we're going to look ahead to the weekend tomorrow. There are some games that will be worth talking about. We've got the U.S. men's national team as a continuing topic of conversation around here because you know how we do. Discussing Jurgen Klinsmann's leadership of that team. Looking ahead, I'm seeing that a lot of the, the big websites out there in American soccer are already taking on the idea of who's going to be in that Gold Cup roster for the Americans come June. Well, who who will start? Who's going to be the team that can actually bring back that trophy, lock up that Confederations Cup spot, take some heat off of Jurgen Klinsmann? Because we don't know. We've spent the last couple of days since the United States drew with Switzerland on Tuesday discussing how we have no idea what Jurgen Klinsmann's best team looks like because Jurgen Klinsmann doesn't seem to know what his best team looks like. I would love to continue that discussion today. Certainly do that. We're also, I think, Monday. So I don't know if it's, I can't remember exact date. What was the exact date of the first MLS game? Because back in 1996, they didn't start in March. They started in April. Pretty sure that's right. You had that, uh, you had that opening game. Eric Winalda scoring a goal to save the league from having a 0-0 draw in their first match. Maybe we can mark 20, 20 years. We're also coming up on the two-year anniversary of Soccer Morning, believe it or not. I think that's next week. We'll take your phone calls later in the show. Christian Hanez is going to join us. We're going to talk to him specifically about some things happening in England. Again, it's a slow news week, but Raheem Sterling's in the news. And here, here's what's going on with Raheem Sterling as I get into the headlines. Liverpool, uh, Liverpool player Raheem Sterling is in contract talks. You may have heard about this. Now, he has been offered what most people will say is an incredible contract. Brendan Rodgers has been in the media saying, hey, we offered him 100,000 pounds a week. That's nothing to sneeze at. Why is this dragging on? Raheem Sterling is saying, hey, look, if you had offered me this contract ahead of the season, I probably would have signed it then, even if it was less than what you're offering me now. But here they are in the middle of the campaign, and he wants to put it off. There's Arsenal sniffing around. This is from Fox Sports this morning. Liverpool forward Raheem Sterling insists he is not a money grabber. Is that an English phrase? Because I think we would say money grubber. I don't know. He is not a money grabber. After talks on a new contract were put on hold until this summer, the 20-year-old has been made has been made what manager Brendan Rodgers described as "quote unquote" an incredible offer, believed to be in the 100,000 pounds a week area. But negotiations have reached an impasse. And again, here's the 
the key, which, you know, it's easy for Raheem Sterling now to say, if you had offered me the contract before the season or the end of last season, I would have taken it. It's easy for him to say that now in the midst of this ongoing contract dispute. Sterling admits that all the speculation over his new deal has been, quote-unquote, a bit much for him this season, and he wants to focus on football at the present time. I don't want to be perceived as a money-grabbing 20-year-old, he told BBC Sport. I think anyone around me can vouch for me that it has never been about money. It's about winning trophies throughout your career. I don't want to talk about how many cars I will drive or how many houses I've got. It's flattering to get a huge contract offer. I just purely want to be the best I can be. He's 20 years old. Would you blame the kid? If he was, if he did have pound signs in his eyes, not sure I would. Now, I might have taken the money already, but then I'm not in Raheem Sterling's position. If there is a market for your services and there's a potential that you could make even more than what you're being offered, don't you owe it to yourself to keep going? I'm not sure if criticism for Raheem Sterling is, is overly warranted here. And our friend Musa Kwanga had a tweet this morning that I certainly agree with. He's in a difficult position now, and this is of his own making, so criticize him for this. Because he didn't take an, he didn't have an offer before the season, and it's let it go, it's let it drag on now. Even if he takes the deal now, it looks like he is a money grabbing 20 year old. So then he is in a difficult position when it comes to quote unquote loyalty to Liverpool Football Club. Contracts. Unbelievable. U.S. Senators have signed a letter urging FIFA to strip the World Cup from Russia in 2018. The bipartisan letter, dated March 31st, was signed by 13 senators, including New Jersey Democrat Robert Menendez. By the way, that guy's up on corruption charges. Wisconsin Republican Ron Johnson and cites the and Republican uh, uh, Republican Wisconsin Republican Ron Johnson, excuse me, and cites the Ukraine crisis as a reason to bar Russia from staging the, the global showpiece. So we have, again, politics crossing over into our football. And the issue here, and this is perfect timing for us considering we just talked to Manuel Vett yesterday, is Russia's involvement in the Ukraine uh, civil war. Uh, I know terminology gets difficult here. Different people view this as a, uh, in different ways. But at the very least, you have Ukrainians and Russian-backed Ukrainians fighting each other. And now these American senators have gotten involved. This is not the first time that the American uh, uh, political elite has decided to send a letter over to FIFA. Let's just shoot something off to Zerk real quick. Hey, can you guys, um, you know, maybe not do this thing that you're considering doing? It's going to have no impact whatsoever. This is because that plot, and and I, I wouldn't want it to anyway. I don't care if I'm American or not. I don't care if they have a point or not. Can't have. American senators pushing FIFA left and right. It needs to be done because the international soccer community views this as the wrong move, not because Senate, the Senate of the United States of America views it through, a, through the prism of international relations, through the prism of diplomacy, through the, through the prism of war and strife, etc. And really, who, is the, who, are the American, <laughs> who are the American senators to start throwing stones about this stuff anyway? Real Madrid has signed Porto right back Danilo. That's a coup for Real Madrid again, spending lots of money. This is what they do. They are not. Uh, this is not a surprise to anybody. Although they have quote unquote stolen him from Barcelona. Although now Barcelona is rumored to be interested in Paul Pogba. That's from uh, 
from Pavel Nedved out there in the uh, in the news cycle again. Slow news week. So this is what we get: people talking about what Barcelona may or may not do. Speaking of Barcelona, Lionel Messi has been cleared to play by doctors against Celta Vigo this weekend, although he still has swelling in his right foot. This is why he did not play in the Argentine friendlies over the international break. Lots of people out there at uh, FedEx Field in Landover, Maryland, disappointed not to see Lionel Messi take the pitch against El Salvador, but there you go. And also in injury news, uh, Bar- uh, Bayern Munich's David Alaba will miss at least seven weeks with a medial collateral tear in his knee after playing for Austria. And this is, again, it, it, we just talked about last week, or maybe it was early this week, that I related the news that the European Club Association has signed a new deal with UEFA to get as much money as they can out of the Euro tournament in 2016. And this is, again, to offset the notion that those clubs could go suing over, uh, over wages when players are injured on international duty. All right, with that, we wrap up the news and we talk to Christian Hinej on the other side of this break. Raheem Sterling and whatever else we could conjure up. Soccer Morning, brought to you by WorldSoccerTalk.com. Don't go anywhere. Be right back. Facing the crowd. You're talking too loud. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. We turn now to jolly old England and our friend Christian Hanez, who joins us on the telephone from the northeast of England, I believe. That is where you're based, is it not? It is, yes. For the time being, I'm, uh, I'm in between Newcastle and Sunderland. Has the, has the, weather, has the weather turned yet? Are you, uh, are you enjoying any spring-like atmospheres? The north is a weird place. It, the sun is out, but it's incredibly windy. So you go out in shorts and instantly regret it. Ah, well, I'm not sure that uh, I'm not sure that uh, short, it's shorts weather here either. But yet we uh, we do turn uh, we do turn towards the spring. We've got to look. The, the Premier League is what it is at this point, Christian, and you and I and everybody else I've talked to about that league have discussed Chelsea and the likelihood that we're going to go in a title. Uh, the news cycle is a little slow. We'll talk about the, maybe we could look ahead to the weekend, I suppose. But really, the only thing going on at the moment that's causing any uproar is this contract situation with Raheem Sterling at Liverpool. He's 20 years old. He's incredibly talented. He's he's due a new contract if they want to keep him. And, and it seems to me that the that this is a little bit of, of the two sides butting heads over not just the money, Christian, but also the timing of this. And, and Sterling is out front trying to paint himself as uh, as the good kid. Is he doing a, a decent job of that? I, I'm not sure if he is. It's it's a very difficult and, and quite convoluted situation, in all honesty. I mean, you have this very long interview that it, it's come out, wasn't sanctioned by the club at all, that he did off his own bat. And, and he was keen to stress that, for him, it's about playing football at the highest level. Now, my gut reaction to that is, is why are you rejecting the, the contract in the first place? Then why is that the issue? Or, or why are the finances largely being reported as the issue on that? I think for, for him, I've certainly seen a number of people say that he's trying to get his market value. But 
again, it falls down to that, how do you see the situation? Jonathan Walters has scored more goals than Raheem Sterling this season. Does that mean he's worth more than Raheem Sterling? Probably not. But equally, we see Ross Barkley being linked with £50 million moves, and he's had perhaps a quarter of the quality of a season of Raheem Sterling, and yet he's valued much, much higher in, in terms of young players around him. It's a very confusing situation in that sense. I think the, the benefit that Liverpool have got is, is that they, they have a number of seasons left with him. It's, there's still a few years, so they can cash in on him if they need to. I think perhaps what needs to happen is in the summer is that Liverpool need to show some, some ambition and show that, as Raheem said himself, you know, he wants to play football at the highest level, so Liverpool need to show that they're wanting to do the same thing as well with their, their purchases and, and the policy with which the club moves forward. Uh, there's a couple of elements here that I find fascinating. One is that uh, that premium that's placed on young English players, and certainly, as you said, it, 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 whether or not Raheem Sterling has the record of certain uh, of, of other players or whether or not he is um, better than Ross Barkley, I think we we agree on that. There, there is that premium on, on English players, and with the new attempts by the FA to restrict the foreign influence on the league, that's only going to get worse, is it not? Exactly, and I think, as, as we touched on last time, that's a significant problem in inhibiting English players at the minute, is that financially they don't make sense to a lot of clubs. If you look across kind of France and Germany and Italy and Spain, these other leading leagues in Europe... Players there who are of potential and have this bright future ahead of them don't move for, for nearly as big a fees. They have to genuinely prove themselves and, and perform consistently year on year to get that kind of transfer fee. Um, and for me, I think that's the problem is that for whatever reason, perhaps it's the, the hype train of the Premier League, perhaps it's good marketing. We believe that players like Ross Barkley and Raheem Sterling are worth £50 million. I, I personally don't think they are. I think they have to do something consistently for a long time. We've seen quite recently <clears throat> talk that, that Raheem Sterling should be paid the same as Steven Gerrard. Now, yes, Steven Gerrard is, is towards the, the end, ending years of his career, but he consistently led that team and did fantastic things for that team, really pulled them out of the mire, took them to Champions League finals, helped them win things. He earned that salary in essence. And I think that's the issue that we're seeing in the Premier League far too often is that we're, we're giving them the financial benefits without the accolades coming before it. And that's a, an issue that we need to address, I think. Yeah, but the flip side of that, Kirsten, is that you, you pay a guy like Steven Gerrard on the tail end of his career more money than he is worth on the field. Is that, I mean, that, that, that's, I, I know that's, we, we sort of in, in society, we, we award previous, uh, previous success, we award previous experience, even maybe if you're not as effective as you used to be. But that's going to then whether it's Steven Gerrard or somebody else, it's going to sort of throw off the wage scale when it comes to a player like Sterling. I'm not saying he's worth what they're offering or, or even uh, what may be bandied about because of the hype, but certainly you could argue that potential there for Raheem Sterling is more valuable than what Steven Gerrard did eight years ago. I think that's, that's perhaps where athletes kind of differ from your average profession. If you're a let's say a radio host, for example, the more experience you have, the more accolades you have, the higher your salary should be as a consequence. Athletes are different because they're, they're a physical asset and that wanes over time. And I certainly see the argument that you're, you're proponing, but the thing you have to consider is as well is, is that maybe from a marketing standpoint, Steven Gerrard will bring you in millions and millions of shirt sales. 
and other avenues. And equally, he does bring an experience, which we've seen countless players throughout the years across world football, I would argue, talk about how important that experience is, how calming that can be on a squad and how influential someone like Steven Gerrard is throughout an entire football club. So perhaps, yes, they've overpaid, but in that essence, they've had to give him that figure for three years. And so maybe they haven't thought, well, in the third year, he'll be severely diminished anyway. And so let's not do that. You have to come to a compromise in these situations. And so while you're paying him perhaps the market rate for those first two years, you accept that in the third year, you're going to be paying him a little bit more than realistically he's worth. But it's 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 essentially a, a, a small compromise to gain the, the first two years. Mm. You know, in the modern era, we know that the players hold all the power in these situations, uh, Kristen, and it, it it certainly seems that that's the case here. But the uh, the X factor is how the fans respond to Raheem Sterling and his decision to hold out or wait or push this off, and and all of the words. And again, going to on the on BBC and discussing his contract situation without the club sanctioning, is that going to be a factor in all of this? It's it's hard for it not to be. I mean, we've seen in the past Liverpool fans have burned Steven Gerrard shirts. I seem to have lo- <laughs> I seem to have lost Christian. Uh, that's an issue uh, that I did not see forthcoming. Sorry. Um, let me just take a break really quick, and we'll talk. We'll take care of this technical difficulty, and uh, hopefully get Christian back on the line. I apologize for this. Soccer morning. Brought to you by World Soccer Talk. Don't go anywhere. We'll we'll talk about this again. Right back. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. All right, so we got that fixed, I think. Kristen Nez is back on the line with us. My immense apologies for that uh, uh, unintended interruption. Kristen, you were talking about uh, Raheem Sterling and the fan reaction, and, and certainly, as you said, there's a history at Liverpool um, with the fans not always liking even the most uh, most beloved players. Exactly, those who you think are, are untouchable, the likes of Gerard, who, who famously was linked to Chelsea, Suarez, who for a long time I think courted suitors abroad. So Sterling is no different in that sense, and it's going to be something he's going to have to try and manage, and something I think he's going to have to be aware of, because again, no, no player is bigger than any football club. Um, and I think to a degree, this is where perhaps you see a test of, of his intentions. Is it really about playing the, the highest level or is it actually the fact that he feels he's chronically underpaid in relation to those around him? I think, again, Liverpool are not notoriously high spenders in terms of wages. They they don't pay the big money and perhaps now they're going to have to force themselves into a difficult discussion in terms of do we have to move with the times? Do we have to spend in the same ilk and in the same level of, of those we aspire to be like or can we do this on a, a slightly smaller budget with slightly less per week going out to, to players. How, how do you think um, Fenway Sports Group's uh, leadership and their propensity for using statistical analysis and um, and the like to, uh, to to run their team? I'm not saying that they defer to that all the time. Certainly they didn't do that with the Red Sox. And so far with Liverpool, they've been willing to spend money at the same time that they're using 
some of these analytics. Do you think that has anything to do with, with how they'll end up paying Raheem Sterling? I think so. I think, I think it would be naive to think otherwise. I mean, this is the, the thing with, with analytics as well. And if we, we look at uh, Moneyball, the, the kind of film that, that pushed that to the fore, it's that idea of that actually we overspend for what we gain and that in a backwards kind of way, you can get the same goal return from Jonathan Walters as you can Raheem Sterling. I think to a degree though, that, that ignores some of the nuances of those players and what they bring in other avenues. But from a statistical point of view, I think, yes, it's, it's, of course it's going to influence them. The, the concern they have, and, and I think it was uh, Musa Okwonga who's, who's been kind of tweeting that this week, is, is reminding Liverpool fans of Paul Pogba and the mistake that Manchester United made in terms of, look, you can pay him this extra few million or you can spend maybe 10 times that trying to find a player like him. And I think that's a, a good way to look at it in actuality is, who would you buy to replace Raheem Sterling? How much would he cost? How much would he want in wages? You managed to get a talent for half a million pounds, I think it was, from Queen's Park Rangers. And now he's asking for what seems a lot in the context of his wages in terms of what he's been paid previously. But actually, in relation to the market and what you would have to pay to get someone in, is it a significant fee? I would argue probably not. Mm, and that's interesting. Now, these are not direct comp- you know, direct. Um, directly the same situation. But you mentioned Pogba, and there is certainly a cautionary tale there for Liverpool fans. But this is the problem with young players. Again, Raheem Sterling's 20. I'm not saying that he's not going to be a, a very good to great player throughout his career. But you don't know. There are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of, of hurdles along the way. He could e- easily be a, a, a Makeda as he could be a Pogba. I, I, yeah, that's a, again, that's a very good point. I think it's a difficult thing to try and gauge. The, the world of, of young players is, is one that requires a lot of judgment and often serves with a lot of hindsight as well. I think the thing with Pogba was it, it was almost universal that he was going to be an exceptional player and that actually, yeah, there were a number of teams that turned him down in Italy, but also someone at Juventus realised that actually this kid was worth giving the money to. I think... Yeah. The slight difference with someone like Makeda and, and Sterling as an example is that Makeda was largely founded on the, the reserve team and success against players who were of his age or younger. Sterling, to be fair to him, has consistently performed against players in the first team and, has, and performed on big stages. Yeah, uh, Just the first name that came to mind, again, it's, it's probably not even fair to Sterling to bring that up. Um, ultimately, do you, what, do you, what do you see the resolution to this uh, being, uh, Christian, before we move on? I, I think they'll pay it. I think they'll they'll come to an amicable agreement um, and you'll see him sign an extension. And, and hopefully for the sake of Liverpool Football Club, it, it heralds a, a new era for them in terms of trying to, to really challenge and, and push themselves back to where they once were. Let, let me turn now, uh, while I have you, Christian, to the, to the England national team. Um, as an American, I can't help but be fascinated by the England national team. I try not to wallow in schadenfreude. When it comes to that, to that, uh, to that team. And, and, and I honestly, I think it would be good, uh, to see them succeed. And now everything has gone well in European qualifying. They come off a 1-1 draw with, um, uh, with Italy. Andres Townsend comes on and, and scores a, an absolutely brilliant goal. Where are they right now in their, in their development? And where do you think they are relative to the powers of Europe? I think they're just below the powers of Europe. I mean, again, the Netherlands are struggling. Chronically, they were, I thought, very poor against Turkey. Very lucky almost to, to, to scrape a draw. Spain, again, have had their issues. 
with Diego Costa trying to, to embed in that squad. I think, to a degree, you can look across those power nations and see slight issues with all of them. Italy, I didn't think, were, were that impressive during the, the friendly against England. But there was just glimmers of hope for England, I think, that, that suggested actually there's some way to breeding an ideology in there. It's, it's based on pace. It's largely counter-attack. And it, it's moving the ball very quickly. They broke a few times on Italy and looked really dangerous. There was perhaps just that final touch missing from things. Ross Barkley breaking through past Giorgio Chiellini and, and only just being stopped. I think if there's just that little bit of refinement in that process, then you've got a really daunting proposition for any team they face in Euro 2016. I think the group they were handed was incredibly easy. Uh, the likes of Lithuania, who... Again, I've never qualified for the Euros. Teams of that ilk aren't going to cause them any trouble. But I think with the emergence of, of Harry Kane in there as well, you have real frontline options now. You have the likes of Rooney and Sterling and Sturridge and Kane who can almost interchange and move around each other. Andros Townsend even knocking on the door there, even though he's not really doing much for Spurs at the minute. And it's, it's, it's almost a good time to be an England fan because it feels as if Things are slowly starting to progress. The, the, you know, the emergence of Michael Carrick again. I think, again, if he's fit, he has to be in that squad for 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then, you, you say that knowing there's, there's over a year before that tournament comes, there's a very strong chance that someone could really emerge from nowhere and, and put themselves on that plane to, to France very easily. It is interesting to see. Uh, we saw this last year at the World Cup, Christian. The idea that Chris, that, uh, that England has sort of a new generation coming through, that they're more fun to watch, that they, uh, they certainly play with some enthusiasm, that there is um, an element of, well, we don't have to believe this team's capable of winning tournaments anymore. We can just enjoy what they are and, and hopefully get there and, and watch them progress. Is there, is there still a sense of that? I mean, because we, you know, we, constantly, uh, we, we constantly harp on the fact that the English media uh, undermines the team. Is there a sense that that has changed just a little bit? Yeah, I mean, you talk about schadenfreude. I think certainly there's a degree of that with, with the English press and even to a degree the English fans. But then you actually watch the team, you actually see them and, and you see, uh, you know, an excitement, a verve, a youth injection in there that actually, with, with, as I say, just that bit of refinement, just that little bit of culture to it could really do something, could really achieve something in 2016 in, in France. It just needs those extra little touches, those, those little make pieces just to make it perfect. In terms of Roy's stewardship of this team, I mean, what's it like to be, and I say this as a, a slightly embittered American fan at the moment, Christian, and I know you keep an eye on the, nas- the U.S. national team as well, so maybe you can, you're can, in a perfect position to contrast these things. What's it like to have a manager who sort of understands what his team's strengths are, understands what kind of talent he has, and is playing to those strengths? Because I'm not sure that the United States is doing that. Yeah, I, I see what you mean in, in relation to the U.S. It's, it seems a little bit like they don't have an ideology at the minute. Whereas at least with England, you can see one, but perhaps it's not the most exciting one. It's not one that they've been accustomed to. It's, it's not leading the four. It's allowing your opponent to trip themselves up and then stealing a march on them. I think <clears throat> in, re, in re comparison to the US, certainly, there's someone who's very strong on ideas. I think Roy Hodgson has a very good pedigree as a manager. He's, he's worked in a lot of different countries, a lot of different uh, club settings as well. The problem is there's a duality in terms of his perception. Some do see him as an elder statesman, whereas I think others see him perhaps as, as someone who's a little bit outdated and, and a little bit blunt with his tactics. Is that ultimately going to become a, a problem for England, or can they sort of ride 
Roy's. Um, I'm not sure how to, to to paint what you just said in a, in, a, in a more concise way, but I understand what you are saying. He's he, he's not going to be the most progressive, tactically speaking, but he will put his team out with a good chance to win. Exactly. It it, it won't be pretty, but then you know, as, as I often say, who who remembers how pretty a trophy win was? It's it's the fact that you won the trophy is what goes down in the record books. Um, there's not really many footnotes alongside it. And for, for Hodgson, that's the idea, is, is that winning is everything. Um, and with the players he's got, I think we'd like to see a more expansive style. We, we look at, even domestically with, with Greg Dyke and what we talked about last time, about getting more English players in there. We question if perhaps we had a better system in terms of opportunities for domestic players, maybe we'd have a better national team overall. Personally, I think there was enough against Italy to suggest that really this team can play in a very technical style and can pass the ball around. You look at the under-21s even against their German counterparts at, mm. at the Riverside up in Middlesbrough. Not only did they beat them, but their winning goal, I think, was a 35-pass combination yeah. that essentially moved the Germans around, cut them open, and then scored a, a really good goal by James Ward-Prowse. Now, that's arguably the future of the national team being coached by Gareth Southgate. So if they're able to do it at the under-21 level, we now have to ask, OK, what changes from that under-21 level to the senior level? Why are we not able to maintain that progression curve and keep it so that our players still feel comfortable passing it around their senior counterparts when they get up there? Yeah, let, me, let me ask you something more philosophical about the game rather than specifically about England. I mean, because it does point to that 35-pass to, to combination and the goal that, that the U21 scored and then sort of the disconnect with the senior team. It, it, do you take it as a basic truth? And is it, do you believe it's still a basic truth about... Um, about the game that, ev- that that if you you really want to m- to make it to the top of the mountain, you need to be working a style that is more or or a, a philosophy that is more about keeping the ball and passing it around and, and creating those combinations than it is about say hey playing counterattack football. No, I think that for me the philosophy has to be using the assets you have to get the best out of them. Um, you you can't change your tactics if you don't have the players to do it. You, you look at Greece winning the championships in 04, they really couldn't have played a, a technical style. But people look, I think but, to but, try and but, teach them that in six months would have been redundant. But people look down their noses at that 2004 Euro championship. They do, but then Angelos Cheriseis has got a winner's medal in his cabinet and a number <laughs> of players in that tournament don't. Um, and so in that sense, again, it goes back to that idea of... I'm, I look at someone like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer who's, who's talked about this and the idea that actually it's, the, the important thing is winning. It's, yeah. it's not really anything else. And I, I do almost align with that because I think, yes, it is beautiful to, to play that way. But if we look at someone like Louis van Gaal as a, a prominent example, people at Bayern to a degree now look at him and question maybe he was just passing for passing sake. It's all well and good to, to string the ball around the back four and, and the midfield two in there and, and keep it. But if it's not doing anything, if it's not actually moving players around and penetrating, then it's absolutely useless. It's it's sitting in a rocking chair. It's momentum, but there's no progression. Um, and I think that's what we have to, to really work on things and say that actually the best thing to do tactically is to work to the assets you have because mm-hmm. Northern Ireland, for example, can't play that way. Mm-hmm. Wales perhaps can't play that way. And so trying to to copy the style of others, you're only going to be the best imitation. You need to forge your own style and work out what's best for you and the players around you. I, I just think that, you know, I think some people have lost the thread on that a bit, Christian, and I, I agree with you. I think in terms of, of the game, I'm more of a, a realist. I don't want to call myself a pragmatist because it doesn't have to be 
lump and chase. It doesn't have to be direct. It doesn't have to be counterattack if you have the players. But as you said, if you don't have the players, and, and then this gets back to, again, the lower levels and, and, and what you're trying to do in terms of developing young players. Here in the U.S., I think, and again, Klinsman is at the forefront of this, but it is also an intoxicating, it's intoxicating to watch Barcelona and Spain uh, and Arsenal play the way that they do and think that you can emulate it and think that you can create the type of players who will get you to that level one day. And I'm not saying that it's tilting at windmills necessarily, but I do think it's much harder than anybody real. Well, it, it's much harder than maybe fans appreciate. And then we don't see the results and you wonder why was all that effort placed into that type of, uh, type of philosophy. Exactly. It's the idea that it's it's simple to just pass and move is, I think, a, a little bit naive. It, there's a lot more nuance to that style of play than simply passing the ball and, and then moving five yards to the left, right, back or forward. There's a lot of interplay. There, there's years taught. You know, they, <laughs> Barcelona didn't occur overnight in the same way that, that no real great style occurred overnight. It takes time and it takes patience, which again, goes back to the the discussion we were having last time about rearing young English talent and giving them more opportunities. Patience is the issue. And I, I think perhaps the problem is, is that in our society, we want instant gratification. And that applies also to football. We expect techniques, ideologies, tactical styles to be forged in the breadth of a fortnight rather than four or five years, which is, is realistically what it takes. And that's why I think it's good that people like Gareth Southgate are working with the under-21s and, and really encouraging them to play in a way that actually, perhaps by the time the next World Cup comes around, England have a, a better situation to play and they have more versatility in them because I think it would be a shame to lose that blood and thunder, that, that kick and rush style. You need versatility more than anything. Mm. It, there's nothing worse than only being able to play one way. Mm. If you've got big guys who can play that more physical approach, play that more physical approach as well. But don't mm. be afraid to to then try and use intricate passing moves to cut open your opponent because you're going to face a variety of opponents. So in many ways, you, you almost need a variety of styles to, to combat that. Yeah, I think, I think it's important to point out that these things are not, not necessarily mutually exclusive, Christian. And it's interesting we have the development of, of Caleb Porter out in Portland. He's you know a couple of years as a professional coach, and he's sort of realizing that, hey, winning is the most important thing. doesn't really matter how we get there necessarily. And because he has this reputation, and he certainly in the college game here played a a style that was very Barcelona esque. It was tiki taka with a, a more a little bit more of a, a direct flair. And now he's changed his stripes a bit. Although uh, you know, again, is that just a a manager developing and, a, and and growing as a coach, or is that is that a sort of admission that we can't play this way? And I'm just going to be, be pragmatic about it. It feels sometimes like we forget that coaches and players are humans. Think how much you've developed in the last two, three years. I've developed <laughs> yeah, in the last two, yeah. three years. Everyone has developed. You're going to change. The, the bands that you liked when you were 16 are probably not the bands that you like now. And it's a similar kind of idea in terms of Caleb Porter's been in the league for, for long enough now to realize that actually if I'm going to get the most out of this team, I need to tweak things slightly because the college game is different to Major League Soccer and vice versa. And so I think he's essentially on a, a journey of discovery. We see a lot of managers go on these kind of pilgrimages around looking at things. I spoke to, to Jovan Karofsky, who's heading up LA Galaxy's youth development, and he said he went on a, a, a sort of European tour around Madrid, uh, I think it's Valencia, PSG, Bordeaux, and, and places like that, to try and understand the best ways to develop youth. Now, again, that's shaping his ideology. That's shaping the way he thinks 
that youth development should be done. And so what he may have started out with in the first inception for, for Los Dos and what he wanted it to be, I imagine is not where he sits right now. There's been slight tweaks and changes to that. It's a it's essentially like a first draft of, of a book or, or an article. It, it's going to change over time. And I think there's no shame in admitting that the, the first penning of it wasn't correct and that perhaps things can be refined and improved upon. Christian Hanez joining us for me. I had no idea that this discussion was going to go in this direction. I'm very glad it did, Christian. Thank you, for, thank you very much for your time and your insight. Hopefully we'll have you back very soon. An absolute pleasure, mate. Hopefully yeah, speak yeah. to you soon. There you go. Good stuff. Apologies for that uh, interruption, but that was a good chat with Christian. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll open up the phone lines. 347-756-6276. Get in. Be right back. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. Here we are back on Soccer Morning on a Thursday, April 2nd, 2015. As I mentioned yesterday, it's a good thing it's April 2nd because April 1st is just a minefield of jokes and joke attempts and bad jokes. In fact, did anybody anybody catch our... Our little April Fool's joke yesterday. I'm sure some of you did. Washington called it. If you listen to the end of the show, I all but admitted that we had a joke embedded in the opening of the program. That when we did the news, I slipped in, slipped in, slipped something in. If you knew right away what it was, credit to you. I think we found a, I think we found the right balance between unbelievable and believable. We found that perfect balance between, you know what, that's the thing that could happen. That's a, that's definitely a thing I could see happening. In fact, uh, without revealing my sources, I had a couple of people tell me yesterday, hey, that thing that you made as a joke, that's not really that far from the truth. That there is some legitimate grousing going on. That the, uh, that the New York Yankees are not exactly happy with NYCFC, which again, surprises nobody, whether or not it leads to Get out of our house. I don't I don't know. I'm sure there's a contract involved. I'm sure there's some some legal language that would prevent the Yankees from but you do have a you do have a potential conflict. Let's say NYCFC makes the playoffs. Let's say the New York Yankees make the playoffs. Uh uh what uh what happens then? What happens then? Who get I mean obviously the Yankees are gonna get priority. What what does New York City FC do? How does the league and again, this is the problem MLS has. When you do this, when you hand a franchise to an ownership group in New York City and say, here, have a team. I know you don't have a stadium yet, but have a team. Because then when push comes to shove and the primary tenants, the guy who's the people who own the stadium, the people, the, the famous baseball team that wear the pinstripes, when they need the building, NYCFC is going to get the boot. And then MLS has to schedule around that problem. And then MLS looks like a rinky-dink competition that is taking its cues from other sports, from other leagues. 
We can't schedule around an inter- international break, but damn it, we're going to have to schedule around the Major League Baseball playoffs because of what we did with our New York City FC team. And again, I get why you put a team in New York City. Completely get it. I see the benefits. They have managed to make something interesting out of that already. They've packed some people into that building. They've built some buzz. It is fascinating from that perspective. What could this team be? It could be huge. No offense, Red Bull fans. Could be huge. And yet you've already got yourself some stumbling blocks. And you could see them. You could see, you could look into the future and see those stumbling blocks. Know that they're coming and do nothing about it. Avid Reyes says, Hal Steinbrenner said, NYCFC will leave when the stadium is ready. What does that mean, Avid? I'm not sure what that means. What stadium? NYCFC stadium? I mean, if Hal Steinbrenner is going to back up the notion that NYCFC is going to have a home, that's great. That's good. It's a vote of confidence. And as long as the Yankees are involved in NYCFC, have some sort of stake in the team, it makes sense for them to want to make it work. But then what would happen if eventually the Yankees go enough of this nonsense? What happens when George's ghost rises from the grave, smacks Hal around a little bit, haunts Randy Levine, and says, get this soccer team out of my baseball stadium? What happens then? Nobody wants to be haunted by George Steinbrenner. It'd be terrible. The phone lines are open, 347-756-6276, if you have any input. Or anything we've talked about so far, I know we got a little esoteric, a little, a little different with the philosophical discussion when it came to styles and, and philosophies with Christian Hinesh, but I, I always find that stuff fascinating. And especially, I find, it, I find it fascinating how we as fans view the, the directions that these things go in and, and sort of the trends that they take. Tiki Taka comes in, everybody wants to play like Barcelona. Okay, well now Tiki Taka is not quite is in. Barcelona is still Barcelona, but they don't play nearly as intricate as they used to. You have Bayern Munich is probably the best team in Europe. They don't play tiki-taka, but they pass the ball around a lot under Pep Guardiola. Roberto, what's up? I would like to go back to your first statement saying that I think Barcelona do um, continue to play a good style. No, no, I didn't say I, no, no. Here's, here's the thing, Roberto. I'm not saying they don't play a good style, but you add Neymar, you add Luis Suarez to that team, and you've taken them in a, a slightly different direction. Again, I'm not saying that Barcelona doesn't still play the most beautiful football on the planet. They certainly can and do. What I'm saying is it's not as dependent on the triangles and tiki-taka the way that it used to be. They can play They can play in a different way. They can slash. They can have Neymar slash in from the wing. They can get the ball up to Suarez, and he can do whatever Luis Suarez does. And those things are sort of a different tangent off of that, that style that they made famous five years ago. Do you believe tiki-taka is dead, then? No, I'm not saying it's dead. And I certainly think that, te- that, play- that teams and players and coaches will always attempt to play the game in the most beautiful way they possibly can if they think that they have the resources to do so if they i mean i I, i'm not i'm not even criticizing u.s soccer or any other any other league any other federation for attempting to create technical players who can do that because i think that the goal is you should want the ball you shouldn't want to have to play reactive soccer you want to be able to control the game yourself 
I just don't know that every country in the world is ever going to have the talent to do that. And somebody's going to have to play reactive. So if you're not prepared to do that, then you're going to lose games that you might otherwise win. And again, the ultimate concern is winning. When I look back at that 2009 Confederations Cup semifinal against Spain that the U.S. won, I don't sit there and go, well, they didn't play the beautiful game. They played reactive. So they, look how many blocked shots they had to, to have in order to win that game. I go, they won the game. So for me, that's what matters most. I understand that some people, and again, at the youth levels, it's different. Winning games, maybe not as paramount. Putting your players in a position to be the most effective team, and in that in that, in that way, again, control the ball is probably better. You got anything else, Roberto? Yeah, just two questions. Um, my first question to you is, do you believe that the international break comes at a wrong time um, during the season? During the MLS season? No, I mean, like, all over the world. You know, oh. it's in March, and it's like, oh, I, see. I, see. Uh, I guess, crunch time for most uh, European seasons. Um, yeah, I suppose you could look at it that way. I mean, I think FIFA just slaps their dates when they want to slap their dates in, and they may talk to the clubs, but ultimately they do what they want to do, and the clubs are forced to respect it. I, I guess you could look. I think it's, I've always taken it just an is, it is what it is type of attitude about it, but I could see why you would argue that it's a, it's in a bad spot, yeah. All right. And my, um, my, my second question is, do you believe the United States national team is more of a first-half team than a second-half? Completely that then, I guess you could say, outplayed gonna, always in the second half in the recent friendlies? I'm not going to judge that on friendlies, Roberto. I mean, I, I think it's troubling the way things have gone. And again, the nature of friendlies, the fact that in, in the most recent game, obviously, Altidore going out with a red card was a problem that changes the complexion of the game, makes it more difficult to analyze that game. You also have the fact that there are so many substitutions coming in. When you when you throw on two new new, new defenders in the last 15 minutes, it's obviously going to change your chemistry back there. Uh, you change, you're changing uh, goalkeepers at halftime. I, I think it's difficult to take the friendlies and draw a bunch of conclusions. If we see the United States play with a... You know, if they go into that, that Gold Cup and they're playing teams that they should throttle and they, they have second half collapses or they don't play as well or the other team starts to take it to them, then I think we start to worry. Okay. Right. Yeah, I was just wondering because, you know, some people in the media tend to, um, I guess, um, count for that um, for these games, I guess. Uh, it, it, it's just an easy thing to point to. Thanks for the call, Roberto. It's an easy thing to point to and say, this is a problem. This is something under Klinsman that needs to be fixed. And again, I don't, I'm not sure that it isn't a problem. I'm just saying in the context of the friendlies, I don't know how big of a problem it is. 646, you're, or sorry, 662, you're on the air. Hey, how's it going? Who's this? This is Lawrence. What's up, Lawrence? Uh, nothing much. Uh, my, my whole issue, the deal that I have with NYCFC, is everyone's always kind of been very, very overly critical of Manchester City, and rightly so. Uh, but the thing is, is they've all been very quiet about the Yankees, who are also part owners of the club. And here's my thing, is it is in the Yankees' best interest to assist NYCFC, the club that they are part owners of, mm -hmm. in finding a new stadium. Because uh, we're going to have to sit here and listen to the Yankees bitch and moan and complain about uh, having to share the stadium, but they're not lifting a finger to help NYCFC get their own stadium so they can have Yankee Stadium back to themselves. Yeah, no, that, that is the that is the element here that it's a, that's in play, and, and this is certainly why NYCFC and Manchester City and, and City Football Group made overtures and reached out to, to the Yankees, not only because they needed a place to play and, hey, maybe we can use Yankee Stadium if push comes to shove, but also because the Yankees have clout in New York that City Football Group certainly does not. Does, is that clout, un, does that rise enough 
Does it rise high enough to allow them to get a deal done? I don't know yet, and I haven't seen, and I'm certainly not involved in New York politics enough to understand what the landscape looks like, but based on the recent events and the fact that they went after that Bronx site and then were shot down, the, the there's been no, very little movement. I haven't heard of any other sites being mentioned they can be working behind the scenes and they can say we're working hard but if you don't actually have anything coming out it looks like you're failing and that looks like the yankees are failing again i mean it's harsh on the yankees it's not really their fault they got their stadium built but maybe uh maybe everybody's overplaying their hand a bit here you got anything else lawrence no i think that's it appreciate it man there you go uh washington speaking of nycfc is on the line what's up What's up, Jason? I actually covered something else, but since you brought it up, I honestly think that, um, like you said, I really think that because the first two attempts at a stadium, Flushing Park and the Bronx site, uh, both got quashed because, you know, it, it got leaked, they went to the news, and uh, you had uh, resist- I really, I, in my heart, I'm hoping that they're doing something behind the scenes right now. That's convenient it's for way, them. It's way too quiet. That's it's and, really convenient for them, Washington. Quiet means good things because quiet means they're not putting it out there, that they can't get the public backlash yet <laughs> exactly exactly and that's what i'm hoping for and that's what i'm hoping for so i'm keeping my heart on that and what? i know we're going to have a stadium i know what? we are what's okay in, so the reason what, why on, I, re- I really called though okay. is um i wanted to talk to you about this upcoming gold cup and the copa america right yeah. and and the mentality between um the, the the U.S. national team and the Mexican. Well, the U.S. national team right now, as much as I love them and I am, I'm USA all the way. Quinsman, Mess, I don't even want to touch her right now. What what I what I called is uh, for, for Mexico. So I I saw this interview with Miguel Herrera, and he was talking about the people that he was thinking about, um, just you know, j- just off the cuff about taking a Copa America versus taking a to the Gold Cup because I think uh, the the Copa America happens first and then the Gold Cup happens r- immediately afterwards. And people like DeSantos and Reyes and Ayala, some of these top people, he's reserving for Copa America versus the Gold Cup. I'm wondering, is Mexico put more weight on Copa America because it's it's an older tournament and it's a more, uh, you know, in quotes, prestigious tournament than the Gold Cup? What do you, what do you think about that? I don't think that's true. I mean, I, I look, until he actually makes his roster decisions, I'm going to reserve judgment on this, Washington. But I think that everything that I've heard and everybody out of Mexico will tell you that the, pro- the priority is the Gold Cup, not just because that's their regional championship and and let's be honest, Mexico has a much better chance of winning Copa, uh, or sorry, winning the Gold Cup than they do Copa America. But also mm-hmm. because winning Co- uh, the Gold Cup gets them a chance to go to the Confederations Cup, and just like the United States, Mexico does supremely value the Confederations Cup. That is a world stage that, the, that you don't otherwise get. And with the small number of teams that go to that tournament, and the the possibility to sort of make a name there against the champion of Europe and the champion of South America. You, you can do some things that, that might not, not otherwise uh, come to your program. Uh, again, I, I, I haven't seen, I haven't read what you've read in terms of who he's going to take. When you say Dos Santos, you mean Giovanni or you mean Jonathan? Uh, no, John, Jonathan, the brother. Well, the John, brother. <laughs> okay, but Jonathan's, Jonathan's situation is he's sort of just now really breaking into that team, right? So yeah, yeah. He, 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 if, he's a, if he's a Copa America player, that actually makes some sense to me rather than a Gold Cup player, oh, if only because... Copa America is a great environment for him to learn and play in, while at the same time, if he's not quite trusted enough by Herrera to be the guy holding that formation together, he'll have somebody he does trust at the Gold Cup. 
Yeah, I mean, now, now that you said them, it just triggered something else. You see what you just did? You were like, oh, the Santos, which one is it or whatever. There's a base in Mexico, right? There's names that make sense to go certain place. This is the problem that I have with the U.S. right now. I don't see the base right now. I don't. Because I mean, Klinsman has You know, people are getting older, and Klinsman is just, I, I don't know what the hell he's doing. Because Klinsman has. This is the frustration I'm having. Right, because Klinsman has yet to build the base. Michael Bradley is your base. I suppose yes. I suppose and, and maybe Altador. I suppose Altador is your base. Your goalkeeper, because I really do trust Brad Guzan right now, probably more than I trust Tim Howard, is your base. Though but that's I mean and that's a good that's a spine on some level, but hey, you still need to fill out the rest of this this roster with guys you trust and you don't have any center backs established as a base. Who the hell are the center backs? Exactly. Tell me. Exactly. Look, you, you took- but just to be clear, I'm USA all the way. I always have been, always will be. Right. Okay, I don't want anyone getting that twisted. All right, all right yeah. Jason, take let, care let, of yourself. Let's man. not confuse uh, Eddie in Brooklyn with Washington up in New York. <laughs> you guys are not. <laughs> you guys, yeah, you're you're all USA. I appreciate the call, Washington. Thanks a lot. Take care, man. There you go. Uh, Washington calling in, uh, talking a little NYCFC and U.S. men's national team. All right, in light of the fact that we are running up against the top of the hour, we've uh, talked to Christian Hines. We threw some philo- philosophical stuff at you we've covered the u.s men's national team nycfc and it is again a rather slow news week um, tomorrow we'll look ahead to the weekend we'll take a, a peek at all the mls games and and getting back into to league action in europe uh but for them for the time being it's just it's just real slow i think we're going to go ahead and get ready to wrap up this tournament i, I do want to 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 throw this in washington does he, he was correct copa america is from june 11th through through july 4th and the Gold Cup is from July 7th to July 26th. So you do have, you don't have any overlap with the tournaments, but obviously you're going to have different teams. Certainly Mexico can't take a team directly from Copa America and throw them into the Gold Cup just too much. They're going to have, the, the, the interesting thing from Mexico's standpoint though, is while Herrera is in South America, and yes, they, the, Mexico may not make it all the way to July 4th. Certainly, that would be amazing if they did. Uh, they may leave earlier. He, he's not going to have a whole lot of time, uh, camp time, to prep for the Gold Cup with that team. I'd be interested to hear from our friends down in Mexico, Eric Gomez or Tom Marshall, exactly how Herrera plans on handling that situation, the training situation, preparing for the Gold Cup when you're in the midst of Copa America. All right. Here we go. Let's uh, wrap this up. Make sure you go to uh, com slash store. Get yourself a soccer morning mug. They're very pretty. They make top coffee taste good. Uh, go to 3nilfc.com, the, th- the number 3nilfc.com to buy yourself a soccer morning t-shirt. Excellent stuff. Um, I heard some, uh, I heard some good news in terms of the, the audience. You guys are out there putting in work and, uh, and spreading the word. And we appreciate that. In order to keep that up, make sure you go to iTunes, leave us a rating and a review. And hey, you know what? Go over to World Soccer talking and, uh, partake in the discussion over there as well. That's where you can find the live show on YouTube every morning. WorldSoccerTalk.com slash live. Trevor, anything else I'm missing here? Am I forgetting anybody? Have I left out, um, a crucial element of the program or people drink slurm he says yeah slurm is great fantastic futurama references on soccer morning thanks a lot to christian and Edge. we'll talk to you guys on friday and get ready for the weekend see you then bye